Again, Genesis 1, 30-31. Also, also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given everything, every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning there were, were the sixth were the sixth day. Good evening. Great to see you tonight. Glad that you're here. Uh, we are going to return to our tips to understanding the Bible, and uh, we're going to continue that this evening. Uh, I will not take the time to review everywhere we've been. Hopefully you have that information. And so we're just going to jump into the point now where we're going to start. And we're going to start in the book of Genesis. And so this would actually be more entitled Breaking Down the Book of Genesis. We would take all the information that we've been given up to this point and we would use it as we move into a study of the book of Genesis. That said, it is noteworthy to begin with this thought. The book of Genesis is the book of beginnings, and it is quite literally the beginnings of everything. It's the beginnings of everything marks its place in Genesis. It has been well said, I didn't originate the thought, but someone did, and that is that Genesis is the foundation on which the rest of the Bible rests. That is a very fair and accurate statement. Secondarily to that would be, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is the foundation on which Genesis rests. And so those first 11 chapters become so critically important to understanding the book of Genesis and then the book of Genesis to understanding the rest of the Bible. And so let's begin there with those thoughts this evening. The things we learn in the book of Genesis are going to be with us the rest of the Bible. We will be introduced to individuals and to concepts and to thoughts from God, and those things will run all the way through the Bible. And what will happen is there will be additional thoughts added to them as God moves the plan forward. But their origins will be here in the book of Genesis. In fact, we are not actually going to be given a lot of information about a lot of different people. It'll be rather a concentrated effort and thought as we move the plan of God forward, and we'll talk about those individuals who will move God's plan. In this book, we are told about creation, chapters 1 and 2, and ultimately, at least it's my estimation, that God wants us, the reader, humanity, to understand by those first two chapters that God is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. That really, at least in my estimation, is what creation is all about. We didn't make it. He did. He doesn't owe anybody. He rules. Everything and everyone is subject to him. We don't come along until day six. Nehemiah 9, 9 says he created 6 through 9, the host of heavens. He created the angels. He creates everything. You read those chapters, you have to be impressed. In fact, if you would, sometimes go through Genesis chapter 1. I believe there are 31 verses there. And just note the times you read the word God. And you will read it over and over. I believe, last count, King James Version, 
32 times the word God appears in those 31 verses. One chapter, 31 verses, God 32 times. This is about Him. I believe that's what we're supposed to leave chapters 1 and 2 with the understanding of. And so we will be introduced to man, his freedom, responsibilities. We'll also be introduced to Satan, to sin, to consequences, to redemption. Cain and Abel will tell us about worship and sacrifice. We'll read that in this book. Noah will teach us about grace and salvation. We'll read that in this book. And again, as we do that, you will see the occurrences of these people and these concepts later in the Bible as it unfolds. What the Bible says about grace in Genesis 6, 8 is going to be true about grace in Ephesians 2, 8. When the Bible says, but Noah found grace, and then Paul says, for by grace are you saved, same grace, the amazing grace of God. God's mercy, His justice, His love are displayed in these events. The book of Genesis, now you remember after sin enters into the world in chapter 3, God is going to use individuals to move forward his plan, ultimately to bring the Christ. Largely, the book, 50 chapters, breaks down into six men. And these six men are primarily the individuals that God will note in the book of Genesis. You can note them by the chapters that they cover, and eventually we'll be at 50 when we get to the sixth man. The first individual is Adam. That will take us from chapters 1 to chapter 5. In our time learning about Adam, we'll learn about creation, we'll learn about Adam and Eve, and so we'll learn about marriage. This will be the beginning of marriage. We'll learn about the home. This will be the beginning of the home. Interestingly enough, in Matthew 19, when they ask about divorce, Jesus begins in Genesis 2. And his question to them is, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, that's where the Lord returns, and that's noteworthy as they were certain he was going to go to Deuteronomy 24. He did not. He went to Genesis 2, and you learn that in Genesis chapter 2. Cain and Abel and sacrifice, we'll learn that here. Adam's genealogy is covered in these first five chapters. And these events show us the connection from Adam to Noah. Time permitting, we'll circle back and talk about genealogies briefly. But I referenced marriage just a second ago in Genesis chapter 2. Now, when you're reading Genesis chapter 2, you'll read where, and we reason very naturally and normally, God made a man, and then God made a woman. And God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him one suitable for him, and that was a woman. He brought her to the man, and they were married. And when we talk about this, we're learning here in Genesis 2, we're simply going to learn more and more and more and build on that. But the, the, the foundation is right here. If you didn't know another thing about marriage, Genesis 2 would suffice. There's one man, there's one woman. You know, Adam didn't have a choice of women. <laughs> the reason the Lord brings up Genesis 2, at least in part, is their question is about divorce. The Lord's answer is, it was not an option. Have you not read? He made them male, and he only made one set. There wasn't divorce 
It was not an option in Genesis 2. That's the Lord's point. But more specifically, this will be used later. If you have your Bibles, turn over to the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians, there is a marriage. At the very least, that's the language that's employed. In Ephesians chapter 5, begin reading at verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present him to himself, the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, note the language, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Oh, he's talking about marriage. No, he's not. Not at all. The very next verse says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Why is Genesis 2 so important? Because it is the model God will use when Christ marries the church. What you do to Genesis 2, do that to Christ and the church. We don't have any problem noting how many brides Christ has. Back, we'd all think it's strange if someone suggested, and when the denominationalists do, oh, he's married to all of it. No, sir, no, ma'am. Where would I learn that? Ephesians 5? No, I actually learned that in Genesis 2. The Apostle Paul says that is what this is about. Oh, sure, the behavior of husbands and wives, I got you, but it was the example. It wasn't the point. The point was Christ married his bride. And there are some similarities. Adam put to sleep from his side, a rib was taken, built the wife. Christ put to sleep, died, blood out of his side, purchased the church with his blood. Indeed. Where would I? Genesis 2. Everything, it's going to be with us as we move forward, those first five chapters. Adam. In fact, if you're there, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul defending the resurrection. He says, Christ has risen. Now, how say some of you that he has not risen? He has absolutely risen, and then he begins to set forth proof. Among the proof is he was seen by eyewitnesses. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to Cephas. Last of all, he appeared to me. He appeared to over 500 brethren at once, many of which are still alive right now. He goes on and on and on. And then he talks about the implications. If Christ is not risen, well, then the dead don't rise, and you're yet in your sin, and our faith is vain, and our preaching is vain, and we are found false witnesses, and on and on. But he returns and says, Christ has risen. And then he says this. 
in chapter 4, 15, verse 44, he has been talking about the body. Now, we could read many more verses, but he's been talking about the body, and he's been moving seamlessly backwards and forwards about death and life, the body dying and then the body standing or being raised again. And so he says in verse 4, it, with reference to the body, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there's also a spiritual body. He says, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last or second Adam became a life-giving spirit. Who's the second Adam? Jesus is. There was a first Adam, we'll find him in Genesis 1 to 5, and there is a second Adam. Well, that would be Christ. One made a living soul, one eternal spirit. One in the garden, one, well, there I say it, in the garden. I don't mean that, but there's a garden that Jesus is in. But he says Christ is the second Adam. You would need to learn that in Genesis chapter 1. I'm saying this seamless approach to Scripture begins in Genesis, and some of the things that you're reading back there is going to be with you all the way through the Bible. You get through these first five chapters, you'll come to a genealogy in chapter 5. That genealogy will bring us to the second person, and that will be Noah. You'll read about Adam in those first five chapters, and then you'll read about Noah, and it's noteworthy, and we'll maybe circle back another time, probably next week, Lord's will, if I can remember, and we'll talk about the mystery as it moves forward and how God does that. But the second person is Noah, chapters 6 through 11. When we're reading about Noah, the worldwide flood will take place. God's grace is first mentioned here, six chapters into the Bible, and the word grace appears. There are people sometimes who uh, present the Lord's church as people who are without grace, and we don't have a concept of grace. We understand grace. It's the, the sixth chapter of the Bible talks about grace. God is gracious. That's who He is. It's not a New Testament concept. After the flood, the covenant of the rainbow is here. Other events that take place, man's diet changes. If you'll go back to Genesis chapter 1 and notice verse 29 and verse number 30, God said to Adam, then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, every tree which has the fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the sky, and to every living thing that moves on the earth which has life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. Sometimes people question, well, dinosaurs and humans couldn't have lived at the same time because dinosaurs would have eaten the, the humans. Actually, not true. They all ate plants. Well, who did? Humans and the animals. That's what verse 29 and 30 says. Everybody ate plants. Nobody ate each other. Men didn't eat them, and they didn't eat men, and there was no fear between them. In fact, they probably played with them. You got pets. But that changes after the flood. After the flood, Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror or dread of you shall be on every beast. You won't read that language before chapter 9. The fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast on the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give to you all as 
I gave the green plant. Now everything can be eaten. And he'll go a little further, and uh, well, it seems that they might then harm man, verse number five. Surely I require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it, and from every man, from every man his brother, I will require the life of men. Things change after the flood. The concept of government, law, and order, that is where humans will adjudicate other humans and decide their fates, that also occurs here in chapter 9 after the flood. I don't know, and I can't say for certain that it's the case in every single event. I wouldn't know that. What I do know is when Adam and Eve sinned, God came to them, Genesis 3. When Cain sinned, God came to him, Genesis 4. When the world sinned, God came to Noah, and God used Noah to judge the world. I don't know there was some sort of—I don't think and I don't know that God did that for every individual wrong that occurred, but it does seem to be a shift here in Genesis 9 where that will now be given into the hands of men to decide other men's fate. There will be law and order and government, if you will, some form of it, and judgment and decrees. The specific reference has to do with murder and the taking of human life. And sometimes you hear people say, well, human life is sacred. Well, it is. It is because it is the image of God. That's what makes it so. And whose life is sacred? Every human being that shares the image of God. And so, if that's taken away murderously, then that should be judged. And so, you read Genesis chapter 9 and verse number 6, where the Bible says, whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. Why? The explanation is in the verse. For in the image of God made he man. That's why. Sometimes, and there are certain Christians that don't believe in capital punishment. I don't believe in it. I don't believe in it. Well, God does. God believes in it. And it's in every portion of Scripture. It's here in Genesis 9. It's under the law of Moses. It's in Romans 13. Every section of Scripture, God talks about it, and God approves of it and enjoins it. And if one has murdered, then through judicial process and rightness, he deserves to have his life taken for the same. Some people say, well, it, it doesn't accomplish anything. Listen, you can feel how you want to about what it does or does not accomplish. I just know it's in every portion of our Bible, and the reason given is, in the image of God made he man. And that's never going to change. Humans share the image of God. That's Genesis chapter 9, and that is the point. You'll find that under the area where you will find Noah. What follows the life of Noah after they come off the ark with these changes and differences as they move forward? The Tower of Babel will occur. Languages will be confused, dispersed. This was a family of eight people. They all spoke the same language. In Genesis chapter 10, it's God's desire that they disperse and go abroad over the earth. They have chosen not to do that. And so God confuses the languages. 
You can't build the tower if you can't understand each other. And so that's what God does. And so we have languages being different, and we have disbursement over the earth as these individuals are fruitful and multiply and spread over the earth. There is also, again, a genealogy. We'll circle back. Do we find Noah mentioned in the New Testament? Absolutely. Several times. Notice Matthew 24. The learning of the Old Testament is intended to help us learn the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament writers will often reference it with the understanding that the audience understands. There won't be a lot of explanation all the time. It will be a reference. They'll be talking about something, and then they'll say, this is like that, and that will be something in the Old Testament. It won't be an explanation further. It'll be just, this is like that. Well, you'd have to know what that is to understand this. Am I, is that many two thises and thats? Do you understand? Great. You're a wonderful audience. Notice Matthew 24 and verse 37. Our Lord is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's talking about judgment from God and its coming. And he says in verse 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Now, I said the destruction of Jerusalem, depending on who's talking, you, you will find many will, will stop at verse 36 and say, well, verse 36 marks the end. I don't necessarily disagree with that. But I think the language, though, well, let me say the first point first, then I'll come back to that. So the first part, absolutely, down to verse 35, Jesus has been talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. When they ask for signs, when will these things come, the, your coming, the end of the age? Matthew 24 is a discussion of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Certainly the first half is Jesus began to explain it, and he gives signs and things you would know and how you would know these events are occurring. I'm saying what I'm saying is because the other accounts, when you put them all together, it's not always as easily divided. And sometimes an example used on this side, destruction of Jerusalem, might be used on this side, end of the world. Two people said. <laughs> we'll try that again another time. Notice verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's certainly the case that when it comes to our Lord's return for the end of the world, there are no signs. There are no ways for any human being to guess the day or know the time. Nobody knows. And so, again, I, I won't fall out with anybody who says, Eric, clearly he's talking about the end of the world here, because we've reached a point where there are no signs. That's fine. I, I'm with you. Good to go. My point, though, is he likens it to the days of Noah. And by those second verses, 37, 38, what we learn is, they were just going along like it was any other day. What's an indication that this day is like any other day? They were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. There is nothing that says this day 
is like any other day than weddings. What are we doing? We're planning, we're preparing, we got the day, we got the dress, it's finally arrived, at last is here. End of the world is not on any bride's mind. It's not on any groom's mind. It's not on any parent's mind. A long life together, well now that is. A flawless ceremony, well that is. But the end of the world, that's on nobody's mind. Nothing says normality like marrying and giving in marriage. And that's what they were doing. And they did not know until the flood came. And for people who have this idea that once it starts, I'll get ready. When the flood started, there was no get ready. The door was closed and the windows of heaven opened. And Curtis Cates in his Noic Flood talks about the floors of the ocean being broken up and the volcanoes underneath erupting and the soot going up to the air and breaking down the canopy and the waters rushing down. He says in that book, it wasn't raining cats and dogs, it was raining dinosaurs and rhinoceroses. <laughs> you would have had no time to get ready. Now, what does Jesus do? He takes that and he pivots to his coming. If you're not ready, you won't have time to get ready. What do we learn about the judgment? Well, that's Genesis chapter 6 through 11 with the flood. Noah teaches it. Not the only place, though. Hebrews chapter 11, when, when the Hebrew writer wants to talk about faith, he mentions Noah. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 7, by faith Noah, being warned of things not yet seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. But notice 1 Peter chapter 3, we find Noah again. We also find him in 2 Peter 3. But 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 18, Peter says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when when the patience of god kept waiting in the days of noah during the construction of the ark in which few that is eight persons were brought safely through water would you look at the very next verse the king james says the like figure the NASV says, corresponding to that, to what? To the salvation of Noah. What was Noah saved by? The previous verse just said he was saved by water. What does this verse say? Corresponding to that, the like figure that baptism now saves you. What saves you, according to Scripture? Baptism does. How could you possibly be saved without it? According to Scripture, you simply cannot. This verse says baptism now saves us. If you are an individual who are, are trying to find salvation in a denominational world, they will change the word now to not. They will say baptism does not save 
you. Here Peter is saying, it's just like Noah's flood. Who would say Noah was saved by anything that doesn't include water? The whole world is flooded. Noah was brought safely through by water. The like figure of baptism doth also now save us. And by way of explanation and defense, it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It is the answer of a good conscience toward God, Peter explains. Where would we get that, Genesis chapters 6 through 11, with Noah? We've made it from two men, Adam chapters 1 through 5, Noah chapters 6 through 11. We would then, we'll circle back, have another genealogy. That genealogy would take us to this man, Abraham, or as he would have been known then, Abram. He will take us from chapters 12 to 25. We will spend that material in the book of Genesis talking about Abraham, and we will watch his faith began and develop and grow over those 12 or those, those chapters and those 25 years from the times he receives the promises at 75 until they're given when he's 100. We will watch his walk with God and his faith grow up until the point where he'll be called the friend of God. He's not said to be that in Genesis 12, but he will become that through the arc and growth and development of his faith. In the life of Abraham, some of the most important sections of Scripture's concepts of Scripture will be revealed. Among them are the promises that God makes to him in Genesis 12. If you have your Bibles and you look at Genesis chapter 12, the Bible says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make you a name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you and curse those who curse you, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. These promises, this man becomes one of the central figures of the rest of the Bible. He is sometimes referred to as the father of the faithful. And it's not a bad characterization at all because on many levels, it's the way the Bible refers to him. We'll note it just a moment. These three promises will serve as the foundation for God's movement and the rest of the way down to the cross of Christ. The nation that God promises Abraham will be the children of Israel. Those, that nation will come from him. In fact, you will hear the Jews argue with Jesus in the book of John, and they'll say, Abraham is our father. They'll claim that in John chapter 8 as they go backwards and forwards with Jesus about who their father is. They will say, we have Abraham to our father. John will say to them, think not to say Abraham is your father because God could raise up these stones if, if he wanted to. So they will claim, though, Abraham is our father, and he was. He's the father of those who would come down the line and ultimately become the nation, the children of Israel. He promised them a land. He said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will give you a land, and he does. The rest of the book of Genesis is going to develop this. We'll jump ahead, and we're studying it on Wednesday, the book of Exodus, but we'll 
those people in the book of Exodus, when they come out of that land, they're going to Canaan. They come out of Egyptian bondage, and they're going to this land that God promised them. If you would read Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45, you will hear Joshua say that God had given, he'd fulfilled the promises. There failed nothing of all the things that God had promised to his people. He had given them all. By the time we get to Joshua, we have the nation and we have the land. The only thing lacking at that point is the seed. And we will go the rest of the Old Testament developing and working on and ultimately until God brings the seed. We don't have to guess who the seed is because Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Actually, if you'll turn to the book of Galatians, you'll notice that Paul begins this section by talking about Abraham. Now, we keep moving seamlessly backwards and forwards, Old Testament, New Testament, hopefully trying to drive home the point that it's all connected and what we do here in Genesis is ultimately going to be with us the rest of the way. But please understand, by the time we race over to the New Testament, the book of Galatians, it's all done. Everything we're talking about and more is all done. In fact, by the time we're reading the book of Galatians, Christ has come, he's died, he's risen, he's ascended, and the church has started, and the gospel is going over all the world, and Paul, the apostle, is one of the individuals taking it, and he's running into challenges, and at least part of the challenge is the Jews don't want to give up Moses. They don't want to give up their traditions. They don't want to give up their understanding. They don't want to give up this history, this 1,500 years from Sinai down to the point of Christ. We are God's people. We don't want to—and they keep rejecting Jesus. And so, the Apostle Paul will go and preach the gospel. Some Gentiles will obey it. Some Jews will obey it. And then there'll be a group of Jews telling both groups, you're wrong. Paul is wrong. None of that's true. You need to come back and be circumcised. And then Paul will write letters to those churches explaining, oh, we got it right. What I'm telling you is from the Holy Spirit. It's from God, and it's what the Scriptures teach all the way up. That's what he's doing. He's doing that here in the book of Galatians. Notice how he opens this chapter. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This, the only thing that I want to find out from you, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then does he who provides you with the Spirit and provides miracles among you, works miracles among you, did he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Note verse 6, even so Abraham believed God, that's Genesis 15, 6, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Notice verse number 8. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. He preached the gospel to Abraham? Yes. When? When he said, all the nations will be blessed in you. How are all the nations going to be blessed in Abraham? 
He didn't say in Abraham. He said in Abraham's seed. Hurriedly slide down to verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as to many, but rather to one and to thy seed or your seed, which is Christ. Christ is the ultimate seed of Abraham. And through Christ, all nations are going to be blessed. Through Christ. Those promises will serve as the, 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 the thing God will use. We just don't have the time to read it all, but if we were to keep reading, he's going to get into an explanation of how the law of Moses that you're seeking to hold on to, he says that came 430 years after the promises. He's going to say with reference to that, a covenant in Genesis 12 was already ratified. And after a covenant is ratified, you can't come along and make changes later. He's going to say the law of Moses was added to that covenant. And that covenant included Christ, the gospel, and all mankind. Notice how this chapter ends. Over there in verse 26, for you are all, who? Christians, Jews, Gentiles, Christians. You are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither bond, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Circle back. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. Genesis chapter 12. It's our whole Bible. It's before the law of Moses. It's more important in that regard ultimately than the law of Moses. Abraham, we could talk more about him because he is so significant. A couple of passages you could read. Uh, Genesis 15, 6, the one that was referenced here. Abraham believed God and he, he uh, counted to him for righteousness. It's a discussion of faith and trust and obedience, not works. It's also mentioned in James chapter 2. James also mentions that Abraham became the friend of God, not when he believed God, Genesis 15, 6, but when he offered Isaac, Genesis 22. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and he was called the friend of God. When was that passage fulfilled? when he offered his son Isaac, Genesis 22. And while we're there in Genesis 2, you should take the time to read Genesis 2 and then read Isaiah 53 and see that side by side and get a picture, a glimpse of our redemption. Abraham is so significant. You might also want to read Romans chapter 4, at the very least the first 11 verses, but the chapter would be good because he talks about Abraham being the father of the Jews, circumcision, and the father of those who were uncircumcised as long as they're both by faith. And that's Paul's point here. 
Abraham, Genesis 12 to 25. Next is Isaac, Genesis 26 to 30. I keep saying circle back. Our circle is not going to be completed. It won't be a full circle. We're going to start back and then have to stop before our time runs out. Isaac, though, we can get to him. Chapters 26 to 30. Interestingly, as you read through the Old Testament, it looks like the baton is being passed, kind of, as you move forward. Because near the end of everyone's life, there'll be a moment in time where the person will still be alive, but the next person will be involved, and the connection will be made, and will leave one and begin with the other. It's kind of the way it works as you move forward. I wouldn't want to leave you with the impression that these are all hard lines and that everybody dies before. That's not, doesn't really work that way. When you read Genesis chapter 6, it starts with Adam, and you read the genealogy. He's alive for a very long time in a lot of people's lives, even though God has stopped using him. The same thing is going to be true with Noah, and the same thing is going to be true with Abraham. When we read about Abraham, we get near the end of his life. Before we get to his death, Isaac is going to be called. And what God will do is the promises given to Abraham will be repeated to Isaac, and this connection will be made. Notice Genesis 26. Genesis chapter 26. Verse number 2 says, The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and give your descendants all these lands. By your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerah. He's talking to Isaac, and he said, I'm going to do for you what I did for Abraham, and now you are going to bless all nations. It's going to keep moving forward like that. Jacob and Esau will come from the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. These twin sons, these boys are described as two nations when she gives birth. That's significant and important because it will come up later. The two nations, Israel and the Edomites. Esau is Edom. Jacob's name will be changed to Israel. His brother Esau, the Edomites, will descend from him. If you're reading the accounts, you know well that Jacob and Esau had a falling out because of the birthright and then because of the blessing. Once Jacob had the birthright, he had a right to the blessing. And Isaac didn't have the right to try to give it to Esau, but he did. Just noteworthy that when he tried to do that, if you'll turn over to uh, chapter, let me find it. It's before that. It's back here. It's 20, um, 
chapter 27. When Isaac tries to give Esau, if you're familiar with the family, you know that Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. And this family division actually hurt the, the, the family. The, each parent had a favorite. And once Jacob received the blessing, or according to Esau, supplanted him and deceived him, tricked him out of it, although that's not the way the scriptures will talk about it, but that's uh, Esau's take. Jacob, uh, Isaac is ready to give the blessing to, e to uh, Esau as he is now old. And in chapter 27, you began to read that. I don't know if it's providential. I don't know that. I couldn't prove it. I just know it's noteworthy that Isaac intends to give this blessing to Esau. And he wants to do everything he can to give the blessing to Esau. What we know, though, is God has already chosen Jacob. Romans 9 will bear that out, as well as the elder shall serve the younger, or the uh, elder shall serve the younger at their births. But notice verse number 1 and the reason he can't. Now, it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold, now I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now, please, take your gear, your quiver, and bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare a savory dish for me, such as I love. Bring it to me that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. He has every intention of giving this blessing to Esau, course, Rebecca hears it, and then she tells Jacob, go and get a, go get a kid and, and make the, I'll make the venison. And Jacob's concerned that he'll know it's not me. I'm telling you all of this to, to help you appreciate Isaac's attempt and how far he was trying to go. Notice verse 21. We have five senses, and Isaac used all of them. Verse number 21 says, Isaac said to Jacob, please come close that I may feel you. Why? To see whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him, and he said, the voice is the voice of Jacob. He's used his hands. He's felt him. He's used his ears. He's heard him. The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Verse 24, 25, he said, bring it to me and I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. He tasted the food to see who cooked it. And in verse 27, the Bible says, so he came close and kissed him and when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him. Every sense he had, he used. He just didn't have one. Verse 1, 2, and 3. He couldn't see. God's plan will be carried out. And it will be carried out in the way God intends for that plan to be carried out. 
See Romans chapter 9 with God's ability to make choices to further his plans. These two nations and these two boys, the boys will fall out over these events. Jacob will flee to Laban. Esau will grow and become mighty. Jacob will, or Esau will be told, at some point you will break his yoke, and he does. But the two nations never reconcile. And if you read the book of Obadiah, that one chapter book is about Edom and their treatment of the Israelites when they went into bondage. And you can hear God's disapproval of how they behaved toward his nation, and God will judge them. Six men, we made it to four. Adam, chapters 1 to 5. Noah, chapters 6 through 11. Abraham, chapters 12 to 25. Isaac, chapter 26 to 30. We'll pick up with the next two next week, Lord's will, and then we'll talk about the mystery and moving it forward, talk a little bit about genealogies. I hope on some level and in some way this has been helpful to you. We're trying to understand the Bible and to break down the book of Genesis is absolutely critical to that end and to that effort. A good understanding of Genesis takes you a long way to understand the Bible. It might be the case that you're not a Christian tonight, and if that is the case, and ultimately, all that God is doing is so that Jesus can come and die for your sins. Oh, that you would accept his gracious offer and come to him that you might have life. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the gospel. We should believe it. We need to believe it. In fact, Jesus said, if you believe not, you will die in your sins. John 8 and verse 24, we repent. We change our hearts and our minds about the way we're living our lives, about for whom we're living our lives, the goals, the means, the ends, and what we've done in our lives. We repent. We make up our minds to be different. And we are sorry about our sins against God. We confess the name of Jesus, and we are buried with him in baptism, Romans 6, 3, and 4, where we rise and walk in newness of life. All of these things is for our salvation. What a gracious and wonderful God we serve. And if you are his child, isn't every day a wonderful day if you're a child of God? Isn't every day filled with hope if you're a child of God? Isn't every day the best day? And what an opportunity to give God the glory he is due. If you have wandered away, please come home to our Heavenly Father. If we can help in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.